Ezekiel 43, we're going to finish Ezekiel 43 tonight. Because next week, which is after Christmas, next Wednesday, we are having church. All right? And I'm going to mention that on, on the weekend. I'm going to mention it. We're going to have church on Wednesday night. And I want to talk about next week, not tonight, the next week, I want to talk about the tribulation temple. We've been talking about the messianic temple that's, that Ezekiel has been given the vision and, 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 and taken there to see uh, what, uh, what is going to happen when Jesus returns after the tribulation period. When he sets up his eternal kingdom, when he, well I say eternal, I should say his millennial kingdom, which is his thousand year reign from Jerusalem on the throne of David in the temple uh, for a thousand years. I think I said that. But the point is that there's another temple coming. There's a temple that the Jews are, are really itching to build. They, they want to be, they know Messiah is coming. They, they, did, they didn't get the fact that the Messiah's already been here, but, but they know Messiah's coming. They, they don't see Jesus as Messiah, but we, we know he is, and they're going to see him, and they're going to realize that, that he is who he says he is, and who he said he was and is. But the point is that there is a temple that is right now already planned, and, uh, but there's a couple of questions that we're going to ask ourselves next week and that is is this temple going to be where they want the temple to be on the temple mount that's that's one of the big questions that people are asking today I want to uh, touch on a few uh, archaeological uh, digs that are going on today in the city of David, which is just south of, of the old city wall, or just south of the southern steps where we go, and we have sat there knowing that uh, they were the same steps during the time of Jesus, and so we get all excited about that, but now we have to consider a couple of other things about the timing of this temple, about the timing of what's happening in the world today. Uh, I want to talk a little bit this uh, New Year's Eve as well, which will be next, the week after this coming uh, study that I'm talking about right now, but uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about how the armies of Gog and Magog are already in alliance today. That's telling us that that war is near. So we, we can't sit here and say, well, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, this might happen. No, it's, it's going to happen very shortly. But, you know, if, we're, if we trust in the Lord with all of our heart, well, he said he's going to come and take us home. So what do we have to worry about? We just live each day. Live each day for Jesus Christ. Live each day the way he has called us to live. The way he says, you know, that we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're to walk in the image of Christ. We, we, we're to, to be letting our light so shine before men. Let's not worry about, I mean, God's going to do what he's going to do. And he's going to do it when he wants to do it. And Jesus is coming when, when the Father sends him and tells him, go get your bride. So we're, you know, and that's, 
And that's another issue that we, we will deal with. There's so much we're going to talk about. I'm so excited. I'd do it tonight, except that we'd be here for seven hours, and you guys will have to, I'll have to buy you breakfast or something, you know. But I don't want to do that. God, God you know. Running out because of Christmas, man. I got like a, three quarters in my in pocket. That's all I got. So, yeah. Actually, they're nickels. They're not quarters. All right, so. All right, big spender there. All right, Ezekiel 43. And uh, we're, we've been dealing with the sacrifices. Tonight we're going to deal a little bit with the priesthood. We're going to deal a lot more with it in the next chapter. But it's significant what we need to look at tonight. Verse 18 of Ezekiel 43. And he said unto me, Son of man, thus saith the Lord God, these are the ordinances of the altar in the day when they shall make it to offer burnt offerings thereon and to sprinkle blood thereon. Notice two things that the altar is going to be there for. And thou shalt give to the priests the Levites that be of the seed of Zadok, which approached unto me to minister unto me, saith the Lord God, a young bullock for a sin offering. And thou shalt take of the blood thereof and put it on the four horns of it, and on the four corners of the settle, which is the ledge upon which the priest would walk around the altar, and upon the border round about. Thus shalt thou cleanse and purge it. Thou shalt take the bullock also of the sin offering, and he shall burn it in the appointed place of the house without the sanctuary, which means outside of the sanctuary. And on the second day thou shalt offer a kid of the goats, without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they did cleanse it with the bullock. When thou hast made an end of cleansing it, thou shalt offer a young bullock without blemish, and a ram out of the flock without blemish. And thou shalt offer them before the Lord, and the priests shall cast salt upon them, and they shall offer them up for a burnt offering unto the Lord. Seven days shalt thou prepare every day a goat for a sin offering. They shall also prepare a young bullock and a ram out of the flock without blemish. Seven days shall they purge the altar and purify it, and they shall consecrate themselves. And when these days are expired, it shall be that upon the eighth day and so forward, the priests shall make your burnt offerings upon the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, saith the Lord God. So after we reviewed last time the types of sacrifices and offerings that will be performed by priests before the Messianic Temple during the Millennial Kingdom and reign of Jesus Christ, we now want to focus on the only two purposes for using the altar which was described previously. That was last week. We dealt a lot with the altar last week. But there are two purposes. The only two purposes of the altar are described here in verse 18. For the sacrifice or for sacrificing the burnt offering and for sprinkling blood on the altar. Those are the two purposes for the altar. And in a very general sense, I want to kind of begin with a, with a, with a broad view of this. So in a very general sense, everything in verses 18 through 21, everything 
speaks of Jesus Christ as the burnt offering, who offered himself without spot unto God, without blemish. Remember, he was the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. The pure Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God. And Jesus and Jesus alone, no one else could be that spotless Lamb. And by the way, no one else has been sinless on this, on this earth other than Jesus. No one else. Everyone else need, needed or need a Savior, and He is the Savior. So He is the true sin offering then. Jesus is the true sin offering who, though He was sinless, was made sin for us. Remember second. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. He was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it reminds us that it isn't our righteousness. There is nothing that any of us in this room could do, nothing that anybody in this world could do to earn righteousness or to become righteous in and of themselves. That, that is just not, that's not the case. It can't happen. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And all need a Savior. So that is one reality that Israel has never entered into as a whole. Now, there are a lot of Jews who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They, 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 they know that Yeshua is their Messiah. They know it. Now, not, not a, it's not a large percentage, but, but it's, a, it's growing every day. More and more Jews are coming to their true Messiah. But in that coming day, They will see how Jesus was and is the fulfillment of all these types. And again, this is one of the reasons for the sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. That they will constantly be reminded that all of those types, all of those animals, all of those offerings, everything was a type of Jesus Christ. They just pointed to the fact that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. And so they will reach the place where in holy fellowship with the Lord they will enjoy Jesus, the Messiah, as the peace offering. They will enjoy him as the peace offering who has brought God and man together and made them to be accepted in the beloved. And remember when we talk about peace, we're talking about the, the hostility toward God is over. The war with God is over. Jew and Gentile become one. And as the church and as the people of God, they can now have fellowship with the God who created them in his image. When we sinned, we walked away from his image. We, we turned the image around. Can you imagine living life now, now you, you know, you ha we have to kind of go back a few years, so this might not be a reality to some people today. But uh, you remember when you used to take 
actually real uh, photos with a real camera, not your phone. And, then, and you had to put film into it. And when you put the film into it and you, know, you couldn't expose it to light, you had to, you had to put it in there real carefully and then, and then you would wind it up and the, you know, the, the, the next slide will come over. And, you'd, and then what you did was then you would take it to a, uh, to a photo place and they would take out the negatives in a dark room and, 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 and then they'd show you the negatives and, and you look at the negatives and everything's backwards, right? I mean, the light is dark and the dark is light. Can you imagine going through life looking at everything that way? But that's, but that's in a sense, the reality of, of, of being apart from Christ. Is that we don't see anything clearly. It isn't until Jesus comes into our life that all of a sudden we get, we get the real picture. And we get to see color. And we get to see form. And we get to see things that are right instead of the negative. And I'm, I'm not a big fan of using negative and positive when it comes to, you know, the, the, the Lord or when it comes to life because, you know what, we're either godly or not. I'd rather deal in terms of being godly or ungodly, be righteous or not righteous. So if we're, if we're godly and living as God wants us to live, then, you know, hey, then we're, we're okay. You know, that's not everything is positive. Every time I think of positive and negative, I can think of two things, right? You think of electricity or you think of the negatives from your camera, you know. You don't go around showing everybody your negatives. Look at, look, at, look at what we did last summer, you know. Took my trip. Those are all negatives. I can't see. I can't make them out. Oh, well, you know, you have to look carefully. That's, that's life, in, in, you know, without Christ. When Jesus changes our you know, our whole way of looking at things. I mean, we see things the way they really are. We see, we see life the way they really are. God brings us together, and he brings us together with him. And he accepts us in the beloved, as he has made us who believe, both Jew and Gentile. Now it was God's desire that the entire nation of Israel be a kingdom of priests. It was God's desire that he would have a nation that would be a kingdom of priests. But that was never truly fulfilled. Turn to Exodus chapter, chapter 19. Exodus 19. The children of Israel out in the wilderness of Sinai. We're told in verse 1, in the third month, when the children of Israel, notice, I'm, I'm going to emphasize who God is going to talk to here. In the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel, Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain saying, now listen to what God tells Moses, thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. So he's being very clear what this message is and to whom it is given. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, 
Then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now notice this. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's what God wants Israel to be. That's what God wanted Israel to be. That's what he still wants Israel to be. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Not just to the Levites, not just to the priestly line. He says to all of Israel to be priests. Priests who serve the Lord in worship and priests who serve the people to worship. These are those who are true believers in Jesus Christ today, folks. Those who are true believers in Jesus Christ today are part of a holy and royal priesthood. Through Jesus Christ, our high priest. And so today, if we're going to deal with any kind of priesthood, we have to first of all deal with the fact that our king, our savior, our redeemer, our Lord is also the high priest. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, you also, speaking to the church, as lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house. Notice, a holy priesthood. God has always desired a people who would be a kingdom of priests. You are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. If you go down to verse 9 of the same chapter, he goes on to say, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. So you're not only just a holy priesthood, but you're also a royal priesthood. Connected, of course, to not only the one who is the high priest from the standpoint of offering sacrifices unto God, but you are also in the royal priesthood, being that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of Peace. There's royalty involved here. Do you know that Christmas teaches us that? While we're in the season? It teaches us that because of two people. Joseph and Mary. You look at two distinct genealogies in the Gospels. The genealogy of Matthew that reminds us of the royal line of David. In the end, we find it is Joseph who represents that royal line. And then in the Gospel of Luke, we're given another genealogy that ends up bringing it down to the person of Mary. Mary, of course, being the one who gives us the, the physical, you know, there's the spiritual, royal, and the physical line of, of David. They're both in, 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 in the line of David, but they come one from the royal side and one certainly from the, uh, the more uh, the physical part of, of, of David's line. So that, that's something just, just to go and read them. Read them and see what it says. Follow through the genealogies. 
and the 14 generations. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Speaking to the church now. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We become a royal priesthood and what should we, do? What should we be doing as priests? Offering spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. And we all can do that. And we don't have to wear funny clothes. We don't have to. We don't have to change the outward because it's all about, it's all about the heart. It's a priesthood of the heart. When we sacrifice, what are we sacrificing? Ourselves. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Your reasonable service is to offer yourself as priests of the kingdom of God. We offer ourselves each and every day unto the Lord that we might say to him, Lord, do unto us all that you want to do because we trust ourselves to you. We can trust ourselves to God who loves us and gave himself for us in Christ. So this brings us to the fact that in the millennial temple then, the priests and the Levites will minister to the people and to the Lord. Now remember, there are going to be people on the earth. The Jews are finally going to be saved. Romans chapter 11. Actually read Romans 9 through 11. The Jews will be saved. That's what it says. Israel will be saved. There will be people on the earth. There will be nations that will come and offer worship unto Jesus Christ. And there will be those who will still need to understand how their sin can be taken care of. Jesus then will be, will be shown. They will say, you see what this lamb represents, this blood that was spilled? Well, he already did it. That's the one you need to trust in all of this. So there will be also singers, by the way. Singers to give a sacrifice of praise as well as priests to offer the sacrifices that are brought by the people. Uh, singers were referred to, by the way, back in chapter 40. Let me just read it to you in 40, uh, Ezekiel 40, verse 44. And without, the, and without, which means outside the inner gate, were the chambers of the singers in the inner court, which was at the side of the north gate, and their prospect was toward the south. In other words, they, they face south. And one at the side of the east gate having a prospect to the north. So even though they were at the east gate, they were facing north. And by the way, no high priest is mentioned. Well, let's go back to singing for just a moment. I want to get ahead of myself. So I think I mentioned this when we were in chapter 40, but singing is important. It's important to God that he has singers as part of worship. And, you know, it's not just the singers that lead. It is the singers that offer that sacrifice as well. It's a sacrifice of praise. We talked about that in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. You can go back and review it. That we are to offer a sacrifice of praise unto God. So, you know, singing is very important for us as believers. And then I said uh, that no high priest is mentioned uh, because Jesus Christ, the king priest, is on the throne and reigning from the temple. So if he is who is our, who is our great high priest, 
uh, there, there's no need for a, a human high priest. In, in other words, there's no need for a, a uh, high priest other than Jesus because Jesus is the one true high priest. So in verse 19, then, let's go back to Ezekiel 43, verse 19 says, And thou shalt give to the priests the Levites that be of the seed of Zadok, Zadok, which approached unto me, to minister unto me, saith the Lord God, a young bullock for a sin offering. Now, three times we are told that the descendants of Zadok will be uh, the priests. For example, if you're still in chapter 40, uh, verse 46, it says, And the chamber whose prospect is toward the north is for the priests, the keepers of the charge of the altar. These are the sons of Sadok, among the sons of Levi, which come near to the Lord to minister unto him. So interesting that there is a person named here as a priest, one who lived in the time of King David, Tzadok. Why Tzadok or Tzadok? Tzadok was related to Aaron through Aaron's third son, Eleazar. You can read that in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 8, and also verses 50 through 53. Tzadok was related to Aaron through his, Aaron's third son, Eleazar, and he served during David's reign along with another priest named Abiathar. Or Abia, Abiathar. Now we find them both mentioned in 1 Chronicles 15. And I'd like for you to turn there. Because it's important for us to understand a little bit about this person named Sadok. We're not given a whole lot of information. But whatever information we do have I think is pertinent to his being mentioned in Ezekiel 43 and also in chapter 40 and also in chapter 44. And David called for Tzadok, 1 Chronicles 15, verse 11. David called for Tzadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Aziah, and Yoel, Shemaiah, and Eliel, and Aminadab, and said unto them, You are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared it. If you read before this, you realize that God is wanting to right a wrong that had taken place when they transported the ark in, in a very wrong way. Uh, as it was coming up to the place where God wanted it to be. So he calls his priests uh, through David. David calls the priests to inform them that they need to sanctify themselves for this very purpose. So there we see Zadok and Abiathar mentioned together. Now, Abiathar defected from David and joined the group that promoted Adonijah, as David's successor to the throne. Now this is as David is getting old and, and, and dying that this person decides that he wants to be the, uh, the king. So Abiathar, uh, he, he kind of defects from David and goes with this person. And, and this cost him. It cost him his descendants uh, and, 
the priesthood. It caused his descendants the priesthood. First Kings chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, it says, And unto Abiathar the priest said the king, Get thee to Anatot, unto thine own fields, for thou art worthy of death. Notice this. But I will not at this time put thee to death, because thou bearest the ark of the Lord God before David, my father. This, of course, is Solomon. And because thou hast been afflicted in all wherein my father was afflicted. So Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spake concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So Sadok, the reason for his, his, his being named uh, as, as his descendants being the, the priest during the time of the millennial kingdom, it comes simply from the very fact that he, in fact, would replace the line of Eli. You know, the, he, he actually is fulfilled prophecy in, in the fact that the, the, you know, Eli or Eli, the, the priest during the time of, of Samuel, was um, his sons, you know, did not, uh, uh, they did not take the priesthood seriously. And neither, of course, did Abiathar. So that line then was, was, to, be, uh, was to be judged for that. And Tzadok, in effect, and his seed had been chosen then to carry on the priesthood after the failures of Eli and Abiathar. And Zadok, by the way, the name Tzadok literally means righteous. And so it emphasizes in his name that aspect of separation and holiness. Separation and holiness, which is necessary in every temple, but most importantly in the temple of Jesus Christ as he is, in fact, the king now on his throne in the temple. Now, Sadok is mentioned again in Ezekiel 44, verse 15. We'll get to that probably after the first of the year. But the priests, it says in verse 15 of Ezekiel 44, but the priests, the Levites, the sons of Sadok, that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to minister to, uh, they shall come near to me to minister unto me, and they shall stand before me to offer unto me the fat and the blood, saith the Lord God. So that's, that's a, just a little bit of, of what Tzadok, uh, what his priesthood and, and his, uh, his part in what takes place in, during the millennial kingdom will be. It is his, his sons. It'll be his descendants. Now, this is, a, this is a question that many people would probably have, but how will they, how will they know who the descendants are going to be? And, well, guess what? We have DNA testing now. And uh, this is probably one of the ways that uh, the Jewish people are going to begin to establish once again the, the, the various tribes of Israel. People will begin to, I mean, be, you, can't, you can ask a Jew, and they'll say, well, I think I might be from this particular tribe or, or whatever, but they don't really know. They don't really know. They'd like to know. Just like some of us wanted to know whether we are Jewish or not, you know. And when you, and when you get to know, it, it's very special. But as far as tribe, eh, nobody knows. But there may be a way, and of course God will work all of that out. 
And it's, it is going to be important, especially if you read the book of Revelation, chapter 7 and chapter 11, when you deal with 144,000, because all of them will be designated in uh, 12,000 of each tribe that's mentioned there. So they, they've got to know. And this is something that God will eventually reveal in his time and in his way. So with that in mind, Sadok will be ready and his family will be ready because people will know what line he is from. Verses 20 and 21 now, let's go on. And thou shalt take of the blood thereof and put it on the four horns of it and on the four corners of the settle and upon the border round about, thus shalt thou cleanse and purge it. Thou shalt take the bullock also of the sin offering and he shall burn it in the appointed place of the house without the sanctuary, which means outside of the sanctuary. So the altar is consecrated then by the applying of the blood of the sin offering for seven days on its four horns. Those are the horns that stick up out of the corner of the altar. Uh, and on the four corners of the upper ledge, the upper ledge being that which, as I said, where the priests themselves would walk around the altar that they are putting the sacrifices upon. And on the rim of the base, and it is all done to cleanse, which means to remove sin. To remove sin. The word that is there, the Hebrew word is, is there to, that's, that means to remove sin. If, if you want to, you can say it's to unsin the altar. Unsin the altar. Remove the sin from the altar through the blood that is poured out. By applying sacrificial blood. It has to be sacrificial blood to the object or objects and to purge, which means to atone for or to atone by a ritual act, an act that they are to do faithfully as God has prescribed the altar to be cleansed. You go back to Exodus 29, and, it, and here we, we get a picture of this being done in the tabernacle as God is giving them direction. Thou shalt kill the bullock, verse 11, thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger. Notice the application with the finger. I just want to make sure that the references are there. So he, he applies it with, uh, with, with his finger. And pour all the blood, then it says, beside the bottom of the altar. So, you know, like, a, like if there's a basin under the altar, you just pour out the blood there. It's a bloody thing, isn't it? And thou shalt take all the fat that covered or covereth the in, inwards, the innards, and the caul that is above the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them, and burn them upon the altar. So blood's been poured out. Now they take these parts of the offering and begin to burn them. But the flesh of the bullock, it says, and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn without fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. The flesh, the skin, the dung. You all know what that is. I don't have to go into any, any detail, do I? I don't want to, you know. 
Thou shalt burn with fire outside the camp. It's got to be taken outside the camp, removed away, because it's a sin offering. And then in Leviticus chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, it says, And he brought the bullock for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bullock for the sin offering. If you remember last time, the hands were placed to do what? The, 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 the idea that the animal now is to bear the sin. The priesthood represents the people. The people's sins are placed upon the animal. The animal then, of course, is taken and, and is offered. He slew it, killed it. And Moses took the blood and put it upon the horns of the altar round about with his finger and purified the altar. Notice, it's purified by that blood. What's the picture? The pure blood of the true Lamb of God and poured the blood at the bottom of the altar. It is a complete outpouring of the blood of the sacrificed lamb or animal, whichever it is. And sanctified it. Notice, sanctified it, set it apart to make reconciliation upon it to be reconciled to God. What an important aspect that is. If you go back to Second, uh, uh, I want to say Chronicles, Second Corinthians in the New Testament, I believe we mentioned chapter 5. Uh, it talks about our being reconciled to God and that we become also ministers of reconciliation. So people can be reconciled to God, brought back to God. This, this is the importance of the sacrifice that represents the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. It, it is interesting to note that because objects used in worship contact defilement from sinful man, blood as the seed of life is applied to them to remove uncleanness and to impart holiness. In that, I want you to consider Leviticus 16, verses 15 through 20. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering, that is, for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Listen, the mercy seat was the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. And this was, in fact, the Ark of the Covenant. And they were to put the blood upon that. And you're thinking, it's pretty, it's gold. Why do that? Because God commanded it. I mean, God knows where all the gold reserves are. And he's, he's even got more pure gold in heaven. So what are we worried about? It's not even ours. Well, it is ours by inheritance, but it's not ours. I mean, it's like, what are we worried about? Sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, before the mercy seat, and he said, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. 
and he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about and he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times. You got the blood on your hand and you're sprinkling it seven times. And cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place, notice the holy place first, reconciled. And the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now he brings the sacrifice. So with this in mind, I want you to consider the next portion of our text in verses 22 through 27. Because now we get a picture of where all of this is coming from and why. On, on the second day, it says, and on the second day thou shalt offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering. Now we're dealing with the, the sacrifices in the millennial temple. And they, they shall cleanse the altar. So there are those that will cleanse the altar, purify the altar, as they did cleanse it with the bullock. And when thou hast made an end of cleansing it, Thou shalt offer a young bullock without blemish, and a ram, without, uh, a ram out of the flock without blemish, and thou shalt offer them before the Lord, and the priest shall cast salt upon them, and they shall offer them up for a burnt offering unto the Lord. Seven days shall, they, shall thou prepare every day a goat for a sin offering, and they shall also prepare a young bullock and a ram out of the flock without blemish. Seven days they shall purge the altar and purify it. Seven days, the, the, that, that precious number of, of God, seven. Seven days. And they shall consecrate themselves. And when these days are expired, it shall be that upon the eighth day and so forward, the eighth day being the, a new beginning, remember that, a new beginning, and so forward, the priest shall make your burnt offerings upon the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, saith the Lord God. Following the daily sin offering, a bullock and a ram sprinkled with salt are offered as a burnt offering. Now the salt, which was originally added to the meal, it's called either the meal or the grain or the cereal offering, so it's, it's really dealing with grain. It, it was added primarily to that offering and to the incense also. Salt was, uh, was put into the incense. But it was later placed on burnt offerings. And it was suggested by Jesus actually, uh, well, anytime Jesus says something, it's, it's more than a suggestive, but it's a strong statement. But he said this in Mark chapter nine, the gospel of Mark verses 49 and 50, when he said, for every one shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, he said. But if the salt have lost its saltness, its savory quality, in other words, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, he says, and have peace one with another. The context of this passage in Mark is that a disciple of Jesus Christ is to maintain his allegiance to Jesus at all cost and to purge out destructive influences. 
counting on the preservative and influential nature of salt. In our Ezekiel text, salt is a graphic picture that the sacrificial offering will endure as a sacrifice acceptable to God. And once again, remember that the offering of animals will be a memorial that points back to the death of Jesus Christ. It will celebrate the reconciliation that Jesus brings about through his sacrifice on behalf of believers. But that is the importance of salt. Think about what salt does. Salt is a cleansing agent too when you think about it. Salt is a preservative. Salt is good. Sometimes we have to gargle with it. Sometimes it's good to, you know, cauterize some, even wounds at you know, a moment's notice. It's good for food. It gives it flavor. When you put all of these qualities together, you find that salt really is an influential element. And when you bring some spiritual understanding to it, as Jesus did, salt is good, he said. But when that salt has lost its saltiness, and usually that comes from the, the source of, of where the salt comes, from where the salt comes. So a lot of times they would just lay the salt out in, 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 in beds and, and uh, if, if it was left alone, it would eventually just be good for nothing. Salt has a quality that, you know, we ourselves have to keep it in use in our lives as a preservative and an influence. So this is why salt is, 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 is necessary. But the altar is then cleansed for seven days, as we read in 25, verse 25 and 26. On each day, a male goat is to be sacrificed as a sin offering, and a bull and a ram are to be sacrificed as a burnt offering. Now, these two offerings are to be presented for seven days in order to cleanse and to make atonement for the altar. For the altar. Once this week-long memorial has been celebrated, the Lord will consider the altar fit for worship and accept it. And on the eighth day and on every succeeding day, he says, the eighth day and forward, the priests are to present the people's burnt offerings and fellowship offerings unto the altar. Verse 27. God will accept. And the point here in verse 27, where it says, and when these days are expired, it shall be that upon the eighth day and so forward, the priests shall make your burnt offerings upon the, the altar. Speaking to the Jewish people that are there, that have now seen their Messiah in Jesus. The priest shall make your burnt offerings upon the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, saith the Lord God. God will accept the Jewish people who continue to make the prescribed offerings. May I ask you a question, though? Do the offerings, do the sacrifices save them? No. No. The Lord accepts any person who approaches him through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ, 
And although we celebrate the Lord's death, you know, through the memorial of the Lord's Supper, the Jews will celebrate the shedding of his blood through the sacrificial offerings. And what is important for all of us to remember is that neither the memorial of the Lord's Supper, what we do once a month here, and we can do as often as we want to, but what we do here, you know, once a month, neither that nor the memorial of sacrifices at the temple saves us. None of that saves us. Salvation depends solely. Salvation depends solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrificial death upon the cross. There is no salvation apart from Christ and his death. He accepts us only because we trust in the sacrificial death of his son to save us. We are saved and made acceptable only through the Lord's sacrifice on our behalf. The Jewish people will see that every lamb, every ram, every goat, every kid, every bullock, whatever animal is brought in for that cleansing of the altar and the cleansing of the hearts of the people, all of it will point to Jesus Christ and say, this points to him. Your faith is not in these sacrifices. Your faith is to be in him. You are to trust in him. You are to look to him. You are to live for him. You are to worship him. You are to honor him. You are to give him all of who you are. The fact of the matter is, we don't have to wait for the millennial kingdom to do that. As believers in Jesus Christ, we do that already. Or at least we should. At least we should. And it shouldn't be the least we do. It should be the best that we do. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Because I want to close with a bunch of New Testament scriptures. And I'll wrap it up with one statement at the end. Notice Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Who died? The Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world, the sacrifice. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who died? The Lamb of God. Much more than being now justified by his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, not the blood that was sprinkled upon an altar, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath, the punishment for sin, through him. Saved, rescued. Now, now folks, I, I don't mind being rescued by Jesus. I don't think any of us would mind being rescued by Jesus from our sin. Amen? I mean... So when, when even Jesus himself says that he's going to come and, and he's going to gather his people together and rescue us, don't you think being rescued is okay? 
certainly okay. There are people say, oh, you guys are believing the rapture of the church. You know, God's got to come and rescue you. Yeah, because I can't rescue myself. And you can't rescue yourself either. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We have received the atonement. The propitiation, the atoning sacrifice of our sin is Jesus Christ. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, it says, who gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us from the present evil world. Uh, did you get that? Deliver us from the present, this present evil world. Many of you agree that we're living in an evil world now. Well, all of us should. According to the will of God and our Father. So he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Go to chapter 3, Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Because, you see, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be reconciled to God. And here it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Well, that's what Jesus did on our behalf. We call it a cross, but that's what he did. He hung on a, well, you know, most crosses are made from trees. I think that's too hard to understand. But some people make it a big deal about that. Well, we won't talk about it. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. He gave himself for us. To die, you see, that he might redeem us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Who his own self bear our sins. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. And lastly, for tonight, Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And this, my brothers, my sisters, and my friends, this is what Christmas is all about.